and welcome to Medicine Matters, the Springer Medicine Podcast. The past few years have seen incredible advances in the care of patients with type 1 diabetes, and I for one have found it almost impossible to stay up to date with all that's been happening. Today, we're going to focus our discussion on one exciting advance, the arrival of disease-modifying therapies. Joining us on the podcast to tell us more is Professor Chantal Mathieu. Professor Mathieu is Chair of Endocrinology at the University Hospital, Gatzenberg-Leuven, and Professor of Medicine at the Catholic University in Belgium. Our listeners might recognise Professor Mathieu from her additional roles as President of EASD and Vice President of the European Diabetes Forum. I cannot wait to hear what our guest has to share with us, and so I will hand over to my colleague, Dr Natalie Wood, for the interview. Hello, I'm Natalie Wood, and I'm delighted to introduce Professor Chantal Mathieu. Welcome, Chantal. Hello, Natalie. So before we get into discussing sort of specific treatments and trials, I wondered if you could just explain a little bit about how we've got to this point in time with disease-modifying therapies, you know, becoming a reality. I mean... I always say um, we are living in exciting times. And then I discovered that may you live in exciting times is actually a Chinese curse. But anyway, I will stick to my belief that we are living in exciting times. And it's really in the, in, in the 80s and 90s when um, the concept of type 1 diabetes being an autoimmune disease where um, the HLA or MHE class 2 molecules and the underlying genes play a role in the genetic predisposition for type 1 diabetes, like many other uh, autoimmune diseases. Um, That was really the basis, understanding that type 1 is an autoimmune disease uh, uh, with um, MHE class 2 molecules being uh, central in the communication in the immune system and, and triggering uh, uh, attacks on the insulin-producing beta cell. So that was really the basis. But in the beginning, we thought that type 1 diabetes was um, a, a typical autoimmune disease where the immune system is the bad guy attacking the innocent beta cell, behaving like a, a sitting duck and just die. And it is work of, for instance, my colleague uh, Desio Isiric uh, that showed that it's actually a, a little dance between the beta cell and the immune system that eventually causes type 1 diabetes. That it's actually a dialogue between the beta cell and the immune system. Namely, we think that triggers in our environment cause beta cells to die. They don't die by necrosis most of the time, uh, where they just explode, but they die in a very specific way called apoptosis. And and so pieces of this beta cell um, will be released in the surroundings. And what are the triggers? Or, for instance, viruses, we think, play a role. Um, uh, to be very populistic, there's some research on COVID, for instance, showing that the SARS-CoV-2 virus enters the beta cell. But more typical viruses are, for instance, the uh, gastrointestinal viruses, so the diarrhea viruses. And so we think a trigger in the surrounding kills beta cells through apoptosis, 
beta cell antigens are being taken up by professional antigen presenting cells residing in the pancreas or also in the pancreatic draining lymph nodes. These antigen presenting cells will process the, the peptides um, and will present them in the context of these MHC class 2 or HLA class 2 molecules to other cells of the immune system like CD4 T lymphocytes. They also will start expressing um, uh, other uh, molecules on their surface to activate these T cells and will start to secrete also cytokines, chemokines to draw in more um, uh, T cells. And these T cells, these CD4 T cells, we know um, normally should be eliminated or should have been eliminated in our thymus. And only when you allow them to get out, you get autoimmune-prone situations. But still, that central tolerance, we also know that peripheral tolerance plays a role. Namely, all of us probably have some T cells escaping our thymus or our other selection processes, but we keep them in check in what we call peripheral tolerance. Namely, attacker CD4 T cells will be kept in check by regulator uh, uh, T cells. And so this balance uh, should keep everything in check peripherally. But we know that if you have an autoimmune predisposition, your balance is a little bit disrupted and you get more of these attacker uh, T lymphocytes. Are these CD4 T cells the big destroyers of more beta cells? No. It's actually the CD4 T lymphocytes who are central, but they talk to other cells, to CD8 T lymphocytes, to macrophages, for instance. And macrophages will be activated and will start secreting inflammatory cytokines, free radicals, etc., and destroy more beta cells. But the big killers of beta cells that we know are the CD8 carrying T lymphocytes. These are the true killers of the beta cell. They, through perforin-mediated um, uh, uh, ways, for instance, will kill more beta cells. And so you have a situation where in a person with an autoimmune predisposition, an immune system where some uh, T cells are allowed to escape selection and are not kept in check in the periphery, a trigger will kill some beta cells and these T cells will get activated, activate more cells in the immune system, and a whole circle of destruction will go on and on and on, and people will eventually destroy all their beta cells. Now, I told you I could talk for many, many hours, but I want to mention a few more things. First of all, probably all of us now and then have a circle that we turn with some destruction of beta cells. But as said, we have our own regulatory uh, system. Also, um, these CD4 T lymphocytes do not only talk to the killers, the CD8s, but also they talk to B lymphocytes that in their turn will make autoantibodies directed against the beta cell peptides presented in this MHC class two molecules. And these autoantibodies are not toxic to a beta cell. They don't destroy beta cells. But they tell us, by their presence in the blood of people, that this circle is ongoing. And so that autoimmune attack of the beta cell is taking place. 
And then the final thing I want to say is that it's not a one directional attack. It's not when it starts, it goes on for a couple of days and all your beta cells are destroyed. No, we know in the meantime, from detecting, for instance, these autoantibodies in, in the uh, blood of people, that um, this process can go on for days, for weeks, for months, for years, depending on how active your immune system is and how the balance between regulation and attack is happening. And so we know that if you have two or more types of autoantibodies in your blood, if you wait 20 years, you will get clinical type 1 diabetes. But we cannot say for the moment who will get it after a week or after five years or after 20 years. And so this understanding of this little dance between the beta cell and the immune system is actually at the basis of our disease-modifying therapies because until now, you may have the impression that the beta cell is just sitting there. No. When it's under attack, when there's these viruses, or when there's, for instance, these macrophages that start, you know, through inflammation, killing more beta cells, instead of dying silently in apoptosis, it makes noise, this beta cell. It starts secreting chemokines to draw in more cells of the immune system. So it's really a dialogue. The beta cell is attacked, and instead of dying silently, it sends out emergency signals, but it's the wrong emergency signals, and it's more uh, immune cells coming to attack the beta cell. And then the final insights in the last years is that it's not all T lymphocytes, it's not all macrophages, but also other cell types seem to play a role like neutrophils, for instance, or natural killer cells have been implicated also in playing a role in why some people start the attack against the beta cell or why some people have a very rapid destruction or a very slow uh, destruction. But so what I just told here in a few minutes is the work by many hundreds of extremely bright and intelligent people all over the world over many, many years. And it's a cartoon version of what we know, and we're still learning. But this is the bottom line that will help you understand why specific interventions are now being tested as disease-modifying therapies, because we will try and affect these different players in the destruction process in trying to arrest the destruction process. That's a really fabulous summary of something that's so incredibly complex. And I think what you've touched on there feeds in nicely to some things I wanted to sort of ask as we go on about sort of specific therapies. Um, before we move on to talk about specific therapies and some of the trials, I wondered if you could sort of say what what difference, what is it? Especially at the moment, we have, you know, some wonderful new innovations. We talked about, you know, we have some novel weekly insulins. We have all the technological advances that are coming and they are making a huge difference to patients. So where do the disease modifying therapies, you know, fit in? What's, why is it they have the potential to be so transformative? Yeah, 
When we had our big uh, European uh, project running called Inodia, it was in the context of Innovative uh, Medicines Initiative. We had the good vision of creating what we call the patient advisory committee. So a group of people living with type 1 or family members of people living with type 1 who guided us in our research. It's strange to say, but they really guided us. They advised us on how to design our protocol for sample collection, also for our clinical trials, etc. But also they kept us on track because they asked the question you asked, namely everything you're doing here, how does it translate to me? What does it mean to me? And we thought, oh, they don't understand our scientific language. We're, we will translate it to lay language. But that was not their question. Their question, what does it mean to me? What will it change? And so what was clear, and it's also clear for me seeing uh, people living with type 1 every day in clinic, despite our novel insolence, despite my clever um, uh, hybrid closed-loop systems where we have amazing sensors, amazing algorithms, amazing pumps, good insulins, and what have you. Despite all that, it remains a burden for those living with T1D. I mean, a pump is fine, but you still need to change the catheter. Or if you have a patch pump, you still need to change the insulin in your pump. Something can go wrong with your sensor, uh, and it's not perfect still. So we have come such a long way. I mean, it's a different disease than in the 90s and, you know, let alone in the 80s or 70s. But still, there's not one outpatient clinic that goes by without people asking me, when will you find the cure? When will you be able to arrest type 1 so that my children don't get type 1 diabetes? So it's all about you know, where will be the, the sweet spot? Where will be the acceptance of this is reducing the burden, this is added value for me? And so where does disease modification fit in? At the moment, it is at the stage where you still have beta cells to be saved. We know that at the time of clinical T1D diagnosis, 20 to 30% of your functional beta cell mass is still there. So that's what you can say if you introduce disease-modifying therapies in newly diagnosed people. Are your chances such that you will make them insulin independent? Probably not. You will save 20-30% of the beta cells, but it will not be enough to create full insulin independence. So where we want to go is to earlier stages. I told you that by detecting autoantibodies in the blood of people, we can predict who will go to type 1. It's not perfect, but it gives us an idea. And so we know that people with two types of autoantibodies, so autoantibodies directed against different types of peptides of, of, of the beta cell, like proinsulin, zinc transporter 8, a phosphatase called IA2, glutamic acid decarboxylase, etc. So when people have autoantibodies against two or more of these peptides, we know 
that they have an 80% chance of going to type 1 in, in 20 years. We call that now already type 1. But we say it's preclinical type 1, we say it's stage 1. When more and more beta cells are destroyed in this vicious circle of, of beta cell attack, you will lose more and more of your functional beta cell mass. If it hits 20-30% left, then you go to what we call stage 3, and that's the clinical type 1 where we clinicians are used to talking about type 1 diabetes. But as the clever people in this uh, uh, podcast will have guessed, if you have a stage 1 and a stage 3, there's a stage 2 in the, in the middle. And so stage 2 is people who have two or more autoantibodies but also have destroyed so many beta cells that when you give them a sugary drink to drink, an oral glucose tolerance test, or when you give them a mixed meal test, that they will have glucose abnormalities. So they have already a hit on their beta cell mass. And so people in stage two, their your chance of going to clinical type one diabetes is very high. The younger you are, the higher the uh, chance of going to type 1 within three to four years is there. Interestingly, if I may add, it doesn't matter if you're a family member or not of somebody living with type 1. Let me explain myself. If you're a family member of somebody living with type 1, your genetic risk of getting type 1 is increased. You inherit an autoimmune predisposition. But once we see in your blood that there's two or more types of autoantibodies present, it doesn't matter anymore whether you've inherited uh, it from your family or not. You know you are destroying your beta cell. And so that is why now we have moved from screening family members of people with type 1 for presence of autoantibodies uh, also to screening general population. Because we know that also in the general population, if you have these autoantibodies, you will eventually progress to type 1 and absolutely progress when you already have this dysglycemia, this stage 2 type 1. That feeds in quite nicely to what I was going to then ask, which is about uh, teplizumab, which um, obviously that got FDA approval in November 2022. And that was for stage two diabetes that you mentioned to try and delay the progression to stage three. And obviously, recently, we've had the publication from Herald and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine. And that was looking at teplizumab for stage three disease and new onset stage three disease. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, the highlights from, from that trial. Yeah. So the PROTECT study uh, uh, published by uh, Dr. Harold in the New England uh, uh, Journal in 2023 is an intervention with an antibody directed at T lymphocytes carrying CD3 on their surface, given at the time of clinical diagnosis. They were very speedy, these investigators. They were uh, quite close to the clinical diagnosis, but still, we know that these people had already a big, big hit on their functional beta cell mass and thus not enough beta cells to keep them uh, insulin uh, independent because, you know, 
per definition, they had type 1 diabetes clinically. And so what Dr. Harold showed in the uh, PROTECT study is that a 12-day course of this anti-CD3 monoclonal antibody at the time of diagnosis, the antibody being called teflizumab, with a repetition at six months of this 12-day course of an infusion of this uh, monoclonal antibody, that indeed he could protect significantly the functional beta cell mass at uh, um, uh, 78 weeks. So if you give an antibody against CD3 T lymphocytes and you just make this circle of destruction stop, you can indeed arrest the progression, the, the continued progression of failure of uh, the beta cell and so the destruction uh, of beta cells for a couple of months. And so if you wait uh, a year and a half, you will see that there is a difference between those being treated with teplizumab and those being treated with placebo. Big study, solid data, no discussion there. However, if you ask me, okay, so were these people um, uh, without insulin then? No, because already at the beginning of the treatment, I told you, their functional beta cell mass was already too low. And so what we do with this disease-modifying therapy, teplizumab, is... We affect the immune system, but we don't make new beta cells grow. And so when you look at these people, they did need insulin uh, for their treatment. But to keep the glucose control perfect, the people who received the teplizumab needed less insulin than those uh, receiving placebo. Now, you may say, well, poof, what does that help a C-peptide? I still need to inject insulin. Yes. But all clinicians will tell you, if you treat a person with a little bit of C-peptide left as an indication of functional beta cell mass, this is so much easier, less burden. People have less fluctuations in their glucose curves. They need less insulin. They have less hypoglycemia, etc., etc. But still, you know, you remain on insulin. And so the previous uh, study called the TN10 study, which was a trial net uh, study. There, Dr. Harold went in an earlier phase, namely in people with stage two. So there they screened originally family members, but then also a little broader for presence of two or more autoantibodies and the presence of dysglycemia, so glucose intolerance, when you challenge the beta cell. But so these people did not have clinical type 1. They still had enough beta cells to remain normoglycemic when they were fasted. But once you gave them a glucose challenge, then uh, they had hyperglycemia. So in other words, they had st stage 2 type 1. And so here Dr. Harold gave them a 14-day course of this anti-CD3 monoclonal, so uh, teplizumab, and here he gave them a 14-day course treatment at a certain time and showed that in these individuals, first of all, the placebo treated evolved very rapidly to clinical uh, T1D needing insulin for their survival, whereas those treated with teplizumab had about three years uh, uh, longer of normal glycemia, so enough beta cells 
not to need insulin. And that's indeed where FDA said, yes, this is convincing to us. Uh, we will approve ipilimumab as the first disease-modifying therapy in people with stage 2 uh, uh, T1D, so enough beta cells to keep normal glycemia when you don't get a, a challenge. And also important is that they tested this in individuals above eight years of age. So teplizumab is approved for people in stage two above eight years of age, and it's a 14-day course uh, infusion of this uh, antibody. The reason uh, that it's a 14-day course is because um, uh, people like Jeff Bluestone, who invented uh, this treatment, uh, really had the, 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 the very uh, good idea that if they gave very small doses in the beginning and then ramped up the dose, that they could escape the biggest side effect of this um, uh, administration of a monoclonal antibody against T-lymphocytes, namely fever. We call it cytokine release syndrome during the administration of the infusion. And by giving first little doses and then up and up and up in the dose, you can escape in many people this cytokine release syndrome or make it very mild and easily treatable by paracetamol or anything else. That's really wonderful. I guess my question from that is it's all very exciting and that this is one 14-day infusion and in the most recent trial, two 12-day infusions. Could you imagine a time, I mean, is this something that will be looked at going ahead about continuing to give infusions another six months down the line, for example, to see if the effect can be maintained? Yes, that's the million dollar question now and the million euro question and the million pound question, uh, independent of the exchange rate. But uh, it's really how can we prolong this effect? Because indeed, uh, very well spotted, as well in the treatment of stage 2 people as the treatment of the stage 3 people, you do see a decline of the functional beta cell mass after a couple of months or a couple of years. And so you do see a decrease in the functional beta cell mass again. Now, how can we prevent it? What they tried in the PROTECT study was give two doses, give two courses after six months. Again, when you look at the curve, you are not overwhelmed by, uh, uh, you know, the effect after six months. You have the impression that after six months it starts going down again. What is the explanation? Short answer, we don't know. Longer answer is we know that some people develop antibodies against uh, uh, these um, uh, antibodies. Antibodies against the antibody. Uh, so antibodies against the plutonium. So uh, it may well be that in some people, the second course didn't do anything because upon the infusion, the uh, tiplizumab was just captured by anti-idiotypic uh, antibodies. So it was useless, the second injection, in other words. So yes, repeating the dose is one thing um, uh, researchers are looking at and in who to repeat it and in who uh, will it not help. But also other uh, approaches have been looked at, like combining uh, teplizumab with uh, antigen-specific interventions. We, for instance, published in 2023 a very uh, nice story where uh, we combined teplizumab together 
uh, with uh, Lactococcus lactis, so bacteria that are that are genetically manipulated and that are able to secrete proinsulin in the colon together with human anti-IL-10 as a, an anti-inflammatory cytokine. And so what we showed in mice is that if you combine anti-CD3 antibodies together with an antigen-specific treatment, you can recreate tolerance. So you get therapy effect for as long as the mice live. In humans, we did the same. It was a very small study, but again, hopeful data because we did pick up in the blood of these people signs that, again, antigen-specific tolerance may have been generated by these lactococcus lactis together with the teplizumab. So combining with an antigen-specific therapy to reset this autoimmune attacking immune system. Another approach is, for instance, combining teplizumab with drugs or agents that may make the beta cell stronger. And there we, we have some very interesting data that an old antiarrhythmic cardiac drug, verapamil, makes the beta cell stronger and uh, makes it laugh with the immune system when the immune system comes. And so, again, in mice, we have tested combining teplizumab with verapamil. And again, there you see a nice additive effect. So many, many, in, you know, many approaches are now being tested, combining with antigen, repeating, combining with something a beta cell protective or sequential therapies, coming in with teplizumab, then following with another treatment, etc. etc. So um, this is really the question. How can we harness this? How can we make this uh, even more exciting? Yeah, I think you've answered some of the questions I was going to um, ask you there about the combination and about your work, because I was aware that you'd added this uh, pro-insulin. And also touching on more on combinations, obviously, we've had the recent reports of the phase two trial on baricitinib, which obviously is tackling another part of the pathway. Um, and so do you see that would be possible? So you said, for example, about the antibodies developing against the antibodies and so maybe introducing another disease modifier like baricitinib might be an option for some? Absolutely. We will practice. We will practice. The whole question will be what you asked, uh, asked me before. What will be the place? What will be the sweet spot? Remember, we have our novel technologies that are evolving. And so with pumps and sensors and algorithms, we have now not perfect glucose control, but almost perfect glucose control without side effects. I mean, the side effect, of course, is the burden and the side effect is still that hypoglycemia now and then can happen or that if your catheter clogs, you can have a diabetic ketoacidosis. But we know, though. The question will be when will be when will we be satisfied that our disease modifying therapies in one or other combination give a, a durable uh, effect, and when will we be satisfied with the side effects? Because also the jack uh, inhibitors like baricitinib in a disease like rheumatoid arthritis or other autoimmune diseases, we accept some side effects, especially when it's in adults. Here we're talking about mainly children and adolescents. So, you know, 
a chronic therapy affecting the immune system. Think also of golimumab, uh, the anti-TNF antibody. Again, there are very nice results as long as you give anti-TNF. And again, we know in 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 tranquilizing um, uh, spondylitis or in rheumatoid arthritis, etc. These are wonder drugs, but you have an increase in uh, risk of uh, infections and what have you. Is that what we want in type 1? I'm not sure. And that's why these therapies of 14-day infusion, together with something antigen-specific or together with something beta-cell-protective, are so appealing to us. Because we think that the side effect profile of these shorter-term interventions of the immune system, if we can you know, re-establish tolerance is really what we want in this disease where we will be treating children and adolescents and where we do have an alternative, namely these, you know, hybrid closed-loop systems, probably in the next months or years, fully closed-loop systems. So it's all about, yeah, where will the burden be the least? If I may add something... I always said to my patients, I will see this. We will prevent T1D. We will arrest T1D. And if you see the evolution of the islet transplantation, so the development of new beta cells from embryonic stem cells, from other stem cells, if you see that field now exploding, imagine new beta cells, disease-modifying therapies, then we do not only have hope for those on their way to type 1, but also for those already living with type 1. And I'm fully convinced that this will be realized in the coming years. I don't dare to say how many years, Natalie, but uh, it will happen and we will see this happen. Yeah. That's amazing. Yes, we didn't even touch on the possibility of the stem cells, the islet cell transplantation. And yeah, I think watch this space. So I think you've given us a lovely summary there of what the future holds as well. So I'd just like to say thank you very, very much for taking the time to speak with me today. All the best. Thank you. This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals for their ongoing medical education and entertainment. It should not replace the professional advice of a doctor or pharmacist and may not be used as a basis for diagnosis or any change to the prescribed treatment of disease. The views expressed by our moderators and guests are their opinions and do not represent the position of any third parties. The information given in the podcast is subject to change as the scientific field and clinical advances progress.